Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 145. We're joining the Amazulu and the Fuertrekkers at the apocalyptic clash on the River Ngome, which was to be renamed Blood River. This battle has seared its way into Southern African consciousness. It's so symbolic that its reference frames modern politics. Just when someone comes along and poo-poos Blood River's importance, events conspire against them. And so to the matter at hand. We joined the two forces preparing for battle on the evening of the 15th of December, 1838. The Amabuta are reigned in the units below the Mkunjani mountain east of Lankomi, and the 464 Fuertrekker men, or 800 in total, waiting inside their 64 wagons. Joining them was Alexander Bigger, the Portantel trader, and 60 black levies. Bigger wanted revenge for the death of his son Robert, killed by the Amazulu at the Battle of Chigella. Also at hand were Robert Joyce and Edward Parker, helping Fuertrika commander Andres Pretorius as intelligence officers. Both were fluent in Zulu and had already passed on vital information to Pretorius about Prince and Pandey, who had to flee into exile. Dingaan had tried to have his half-brother assassinated. The paranoid Zulu king thought Mpandi was planning to oust him, as he had done to his half-brother, Shaka. The scene was set, folks, for the seminal battle at a picturesque place. The lager had been drawn up in an oval shape on the western bank of the Ngomi River. To its south was a deep donga, about 50 metres away, that had been scoured by rain, and this ran into the Ngomi, with banks that were over two metres high. It's important to mention this, as you'll hear in a minute. While Amazulu warriors could hide in this donga, it really worked in the trekkers' favour because it broke up the ground. They could not charge the wagons, but had to clamber over the trench-like ledge, and then were easy pickings for the Boer sharpshooters. The eastern side of the lager faced the Ngomi River, about 80 metres away, and this was regarded as even more difficult to assault. The river bank was muddy, covered in reeds, making the approach almost impossible to achieve with any speed. About half a kilometre upstream, this river broadens into a marsh dotted with deep pools, and crossing at that point would be almost impossible. Downstream from the lager is a very deep hippo pool, or Siukui Khat as it's known. No Amazulu warrior would be crossing there either. More than half a kilometre downstream was a well-used drift, and southeast of the Ngomi was a broad open plain dotted with small marshes and pools, and further south lies the Shogani Ridge, more than a kilometre away. It was summer, and the rains had come. The river was flooding, which was to further complicate the Amazulu assault. All this meant that the lager could only be attacked from the north and the west, and the Boers set up their defences to take advantage of their firepower there. The plain around this area was denuded of thorn trees, but Pretorius had taken precautions and ordered the men to weave together panels that enclosed livestock, about two or three metres long by one metre high. These would be wedged between the wagons instead of the thorn bushes, usually bundled into the spaces and between the wheels. The Fuertrickers referred to these panels as their fighting gates, their fechhecker. Skins of the slaughtered oxen were pulled over the wheels as well, and their lager was virtually impregnable, at least when attacked by men with assegais. Almost 1,000 cattle and 700 horses were herded into this lager, another change from previous tactics, where they were left outside and were seized by warriors. This time, it would be no easy prize for the Amabuta. They were going to have to attack the lager repeatedly. It was death or glory. Pretorius ordered the three cannon he had to be set up strategically. One they named Ochriki on the northern side, the second called Steliki on the west, and the copper cannon called Vierskant 
or often facing the river. Oddly enough, there's been a bit of debate about where the cannon were, but it makes sense that Vierskant would face over the river because it had a range of more than one and a half kilometers. It was a ship's cannon, and the Zulu would be coming from that direction. The first two had a range of only 250 meters, and they were pointing west and north. This made sense for a number of reasons. Pretorius was covering the main advance point the Zulu would take, but he was also placing the cannon in three different locations, which meant that the cattle would not run from the huge blasts. They would be surrounded by these cannon, and he hoped that would stop them from stampeding. He had ordered grapeshot prepared, a terrifying armament, round shot that was packed into a bag, stuffed down the cannon barrels, ready to cause carnage. The men were arranged in groups of 50 and 50 metres apart. He was trying to convince the Zulu commanders that he had more than the 464 main Boer soldiers, along with a large number of Achtereis. There were a total of 800 men inside this lager. Six commandants were going to control these units, including Hans Donstalanger and Kurs Porchita. A few scouts had been left by Pretorius after an initial reconnaissance to watch the Zulu at their camp about 10 kilometers away towards Ngutu. On the other side of the river, near Mtunjani Mountain, Zulu commander Ndlela Kasampisi and his 2IC Nzobo were finalizing their plans on the night of the 15th of December 1838. He had a number of crack Zulu regiments, the Isetlango Mklope, the White Shields, the Isetlango Munyama, the Black Shields, the Izinyozi, the Bees, Islamberlu, who were the Fearless, the Imkulutjani, or the Wild Bucks, the Ufazimba, the Body, the Imhai, the Praised Ones, the Itlangezwa, hard of hearing, the older men, the Mkuchan, the devious, and Untlangubo, or clothed ones, the Mbebeya, who came at you, and the Mvoko, the invited regiment. There was an interesting addition, the Isitunisa, a small unit of 200 Zulu warriors on horses armed with muskets seized from Pitratif and during other clashes at Italeni and the Tugela. And Lela's plan included trying to entice the Boers out of the lager and into the Donga to the south. This was a good idea, because a heavy mist settled over the Ngomi River on the night of the 15th, and Pretorius called in the scouts with a blast of one of the cannon. It was useless leaving them in danger when they couldn't see a thing. The lanterns were lit, and they were hung as usual from long whip stocks, swaying in the breeze as a waning crescent moon shone dimly overhead. Pretorius was hoping that Ndlela and Nzobo wouldn't attack the next day, the 16th. It was Sunday. The Sabbath. He had reinforced the concept of the covenant. He told his men that this was a moment where their God would protect them, and should they be successful, the Boers would build a church in honor of the moment and commemorate the day forever. Fighting a battle on a Sunday would be hard for someone so dedicated to his religion, but it could be said that the battle on a Sunday was proof of divine powers which were dictating the outcome, at least from Pretorius's point of view. The Boers knelt that night and recited Psalm 38 in solemn unison, while, out in the darkness, the Zulu scouts picked up the sound. The sight of the ghostly lanterns swinging flickering light and the Boers' voices carrying in the quiet was unnerving to these warriors. Amazulu oral history speaks of the warriors now believing they were going into fight against an unearthly army of evil spirits. Potolozi, the Zulu name for Pretorius, had to be overcome. It was well before dawn on the 16th of December that Ndlela ordered his warriors to rise and prepare. He had a problem. 
Dingaan had made it clear that this was his last chance to finish off the Boers, and Portolozzi hadn't been duped into attacking his men, who'd been reclining so clearly, on the side of Mtunjani Mountain the day before. Inlele's supplies were limited, so he couldn't surround the lager and wait for the Boers to weaken. It was going to be a direct assault. Inlele had countered the Boers. He wasn't fooled by Pretorius's attempts at falsely inflating his numbers over the past few days. The Amazulu had an advantage of 20 to 1 when it came to manpower. He assigned the Mvoko and the Izinyozi to carry off the wagons once the Boers were defeated. The Zulus were going to melt down the iron rims and turn them into hoes for agriculture. And Lela was certain of victory. Whatever he thought deep down, we'll never know, but a neutral observer would have agreed with him. The Amazulu were going to sweep down on the lager and overcome the defenders with relative ease. For all the Amazulu planning and Lela and Nzoba's tactical acumen, the coming battle was going to see upwards of 10,000 and some say more like 15,000 Zulu warriors. Sometimes less is more, and historians believe that the Zulu commanders had bitten off more than they could chew with this large army. The major problem was the Amabuta were in competition with each other to prove which was the most aggressive, and the younger warriors in particular tended to let bloodlust go to their heads. And Lela hoped that whatever plan he'd set in motion would be followed as closely as possible by his Indunas, but there was no guarantee. So before dawn on the 16th, this huge Zulu army stomped out their fires and began to move. Hans Donstalanga was expecting this. He'd been ordered by Pretorius to ride to Mtunjani in the darkness before dawn to see what was going on. Dalanga galloped back with the news the battle was imminent. Pretorius had fine-tuned his orders that morning, telling the commandants to get the men to fire in succession. A line of musket balls would stream out towards the attacking Zulu and it meant that there was theoretically going to be constant fire. They had also stacked their luapas of buckshot. These were full of rounds and burst about 40 meters after being fired, spraying the surrounds. Each man had two to three dreaded zanners, their long powerful muskets, and sources of gunpowder within easy reach. And Lela told the left Upondo, or horn, to begin the attack, led by the Zulu cavalry, the Isin Tunisa. Perhaps because the horses were skittish, or that the Upondo was motivated to gain glory over the other sections, they soon left the central Isifuba and the right Upondo behind. Zulu oral tradition says this was intended. They were supposed to surround the enemy, so that there was no escape. However, all this did was break up the large Zulu army, thereby reducing their main strategic advantage before the attack had even started. This is not how Lela and Zobo had planned the attack. The left Upondo was made up of the younger men, the hotheads, the unmarried Utlambedlu and the Imhai, so it's more likely that they let the moment get the best of them instead of allowing this massive army to strike simultaneously. It was still before daybreak when 3,000 men or more from the left horn crossed the river at the drift half a kilometre downstream of the lager, and keeping well out of range of the Boer muskets, they circled around to the west. It was the Port Natal men, the black levies and bigger, who realised what was going on. They'd heard this sound before. It's the sound of thousands of stealthily shuffling feet moving through grass, like a malevolent breeze. Then quite suddenly, the left Upondo reached a spot around 150 metres away to the northwest and sat down in a semicircle, each Ibutu behind its commander, its Izinduna. They were not going to attack these ghostly spirits who had sung so eerily in the mist at night. They were waiting for the sun to rise. 
As the sun rose, so did the mist, and at 6.30 visibility improved, and a shocking view it was for the Boers in the lager. It was their first clear sight of the Amazulu, and fear washed over the men behind the wagons. Pretorius didn't have time to say anything, for moments later the Izinduna gave the order, and the regiments sprang to their feet, rattled their spears on their large shields, whistled and yelled, and then stormed the wagons. And Lela had given commands about this. Unlike Fechla, where he'd probed and fenced with the Boers, this was going to be a full frontal charge straight at the trekkers' guns. And Lela fully expected hundreds, possibly thousands of casualties. But, something like the generals of the Western Front in World War I, he expected his men would eventually flood over the trekker wagons and it would be game over. Later, Pretorius and others would say that God was indeed following up on his covenant promise because the day was still, there was no wind, there was no rain. No wind meant the Boers' rounds would fly straight and true, and no rain meant the powder would stay dry. The sunshine was bright, as it is in South Africa, when the mist clears on a summer's day, the blue sky and light almost piercing, it is so clear. The Boers could find their range easily. The Amabuta almost made it to the wagons. At the closest point in this first charge, the warriors were ten metres away from the lager, but this is where the terrible effect of the buckshot in bags, the cannon fire, and the constant flood of lead aimed extremely accurately at the attacking targets bunched together took their toll. If you had to gaze upon the sight, you would have seen the dirty white smoke from the guns rising almost straight up, no wind to blow it either side. Straight as a plumb line, some said later. Zulu warriors were being eviscerated by the fire, and yet they did not waver. Their courageous Isanduna behind, yelling, Shaka is among you! The Boers did not have time to ram their rounds down the barrels. They popped the rounds in their mouths, then dropped them into the barrels, slicked with saliva, as John Labant, the historian, explains. Despite the urgent commands, the left horn broke, then retreated. The actions had already verged on superhuman, seeing their colleagues shot down in their hundreds and trying to gain a foothold on the wagons. Brave as they were, it was too much, and then out of range, the survivors began to try and find a way to get around the back of the lager or the front. These men were targeted. As the Boers' fire was unending, it never let up for a minute. Oral tradition speaks of this moment. The Zulu praise poets would remind leaders later of this time where the fighters at the Ngomi turned their backs on the Boers and died with wounds indicating they were not facing their enemy. And if you've listened to the series so far, you'll know what an indictment that is in Amazulu Marshall's storytelling. But what could they do? Some of the men rushed to the deep dongo on the south side, the one with the trench-like appearance with its two-meter-high walls. They couldn't even stand up to hurl their spears for fear of being shot down. Others, caught in the open, lay under their shields, hoping to evade the bullets. It was now that Delanga and Pretorius knew what to do. It was time for a counter-attack. With all the Zulu hiding in the Donga, it was a perfect moment to charge out, and this shocked the warriors. They were now put to full flight. One of them was Ngidi, who was sprinting away when he was hit by two bullet shards in both thighs, but managed to keep going. Then Nongkobokai Senzangakono, who led the Izinyozi, the beads, were shot through his stomach and collapsed. Ngidi heard him shout, Take my greetings to my brother and say my farewells to him. He died shortly afterwards. 
Don Kobo was Dingaan's half-brother of royal blood. Some of the few hundred warriors managed to make it to the drift further southeast and were crossing the Ngomi, while others sprinted for a hill in the other direction, the southwest, that was renamed Fekop by the Boers. The rest of the Zulu army now appeared, and Pretorius called the commander back into the lager. Hundreds of warriors lay on the open ground. Many were still alive. Dozens more were piled up in the donga. It was carnage, but Ndlela had to keep going. The Ratu Pondo attacked immediately, the Mkuluchani and Mguluchani regiments streaming forward, once again leaving the rest of the army, the central Isifuba, behind, but not too far away. This was going to be a close call, because these two sections were acting in unison, and the Isifuba was made up of extremely well-trained veterans, the Idlangezwa as well as other members of the Izinyozi. A group of Amazulu reinforcements, the Ibuto called the Ikokoti, were held back. They were armed only with knobkeris and were watching from the eastern side of the Ngomi River. They were the Umuva. They were to descend and finish off any wounded boers and collect the livestock once the trekkers had been overcome. These two units, the Isifuba and the Umuva, headed down the slopes from the Shogani Ridge about a kilometre southeast of the river and then stopped once more. Waiting and watching with them were Nlela and Nzobel, taking up the Amazulu general's usual position on high ground nearby. The right horn now advanced on the lager from the northeast, but they were also forced into open clear ground between the marsh and the Sikui Khat. They were almost out of range, and Pretorius halted the firing, and then sent a party of horsemen out. These men galloped to the west bank of the Ngomi, lay down, and began to pepper the right horn with fire. Vieskant, the powerful naval cannon, was also pointed this way and began to open up on the Amazulu approaching. One of the cannon rounds was aimed at the Umuva and just missed Ndlela and Nzobu, who were forced to scatter for cover. Several of their retainers were hit. The right horn now veered south, heading for the drift that the left horn had used. While they moved fast, Ndlela ordered the Isufuba to advance behind this right horn and then both crossed over the Ngomi River. It was time for round two, and the Amazulu warriors were now committed to attacking the lager from the north and the west, just as the left horn had done and been decimated. They ran into a withering fire in an area that was only around 150 metres wide, cramming thousands of men into a killing zone where the Boer muskets and cannons scythed them down. This is where the overwhelming odds did not matter, because the men were in rows, one behind the other, in a small area. Both Ntlela and Pretorius appeared to realise this was the moment of the battle, the most crucial time. The Isifuba also realised this, and the Izinduna began taunting the men of the right horn, exhorting them to continue their attack, while some overzealous elders of the Isifuba tried to push through the youngsters to reach the Amambunu themselves. In this wretched chaos, all discipline amongst the Amazulu broke down and some members of the Isufuba and Right Horn began to fight each other, a self-destructive moment that increased the confusion. It also meant that by moving forward into the mass of Right Horn fighters, they had increased the concentration of men, and the Boers took immediate advantage. It was 11 a.m., and the Zulu attack broke off once more. The smell of blood and the stench of war overwhelmed many on both sides, Pretorius knew that the time was right for a counter-attack once again. He assessed the regiment's actions. He saw that the Amazulu were breaking off. They were running. 
So the Boer commander ordered 100 men to join him, mounting their horses and charging the now retreating Zulu. He almost paid for this with his life. Some of the warriors turned to fight rather than being run down like hares, and one took aim at Pretorius himself, who fired but missed. His horse bucked. Pretorius slid down, dismounting as the Zulu warrior aimed his stabbing spear at the Boer leader, who parried the metal tip away with the butt of his musket. Pretorius was carrying a double-barreled weapon, but it had jammed. The warrior managed to stab Pretorius in the hand, and then they were rolling over and over on the ground, hand to hand. The warrior dropped his spear, and it was clear that Pretorius was in deep trouble. The Amazulu man was stronger. He clamped his hands around Pretorius's throat, and began to throttle him to death. Another Boer, Piet Rudolf, saw what was happening and grabbed the Zulu warrior's spear, stabbing him with his own weapon. In this sea of war, warriors were trying to hide in the reeds along the Ngomi, lying as still as possible, breathing through their noses. It is now, as the Boers shot the warriors where they lay in the water, that the waters of Siakui Khat began to redden, darkening with the blood of the fighters. Hundreds were to die in this pool, thus the name Blood River. Hundreds of survivors made for Fachkop to the southwest to join remnants of the left horn, while others surged towards the drift downstream. Some lay amongst their comrades, only to be tracked down by the Boers as they shot into the piles of bodies to make sure everyone was dead. Pretorius had returned to camp to bind his wound, while other commanders raced out to the east, riding for over three hours until their horses were exhausted, hunting down the Amabuto. Hundreds more died on these plains, and the Amazulu called this battle the Plain of Bones. At least 1,000 and possibly as many as 3,000 Amazulu died that day. A large number of persons of rank perished at Ngomi, royal house members, Indunas. The social effect on the Amazulu was almost catastrophic. The royal members who could not escape, well, Zulu oral tradition speaks of these as being overweight, they of big bellies, who could not outrun the Boers. Two of Dingaan's half-brothers were among the casualties, although it is said they preferred to die at the hands of the trekkers than return to be killed by Dingaan for failing in their quest. For the Boers, it was a different story. The Ven commander, as this group of trekkers was called from now on, had suffered one dead and three wounded. One of the wounded was Pretorius himself. The much-vaunted Amazulu army had been defeated before midday on the 16th of December, and the horsemen returned to their lager, where thanksgiving service was held. The muskets were cleaned, the ammunition replenished. Perhaps Ndlela would turn and attack again. But he wouldn't. The great army had been scattered, and now there was no one to stop the Uven commander's relentless advance on Dingana's Mgungdlovu. This historical event is seminal in South Africa's history. The day would be commemorated as the Day of the Covenant, the Day of the Vow, or Dingana's Day, or now the Day of Reconciliation. It was a defining moment in military terms. One of the most military-minded people of Southern Africa, Lamazulu, had been defeated. Damatembu took note, so too the Basutu and Amakosa. News of this Zulu disaster spread far and wide, and many of the Amazulu victims who'd felt the expansion of Shaka joined the Boers in celebration. Since then, both Zulu and Afrikaner nationalists have used the Battle of the Plain of Bones or Blood River 
whatever floats your boat, as a rallying cry. Revisionists say the Zulu never lost a battle because the Zulu never lost a battle. Well, try telling that to the praise poets of Dingana. The Izibongo Zika Dingana sing a very different tune. Or to Dingana himself, who was to flee from Ngung Lovu before the Ven commander arrived seeking revenge for Petra Teeth. Or to Mpande, who was to use Dingana's defeat to take control of the entire Zulu nation. Of course, this covenant became proof later for an apartheid government that said White's own policy was somehow a divine prophecy underpinned by this military event that turned into a self-serving political fate accompli. All political movements, of course, have their rituals and narratives, their heroes, their villains, gaining inspiration from a warped concept of the past that somehow envelops the education curriculum, with the reminder that the victors always get to tell their version of history. And, in a moment of supreme irony, on precisely the day that Dingana's army was being defeated by the Boers, the British raised a flag in Port Natal, aka Durban. Major Charters and his troops held a small but consequential ceremony, hoisting the Union Jack under a royal salute, formalizing Great Britain's control over the port and its surrounds. On the very day that Pretorius won his covenant, he lost his Republica Natalia. With that little aside, get ready for some significant events taking place in 1839 across southern Africa. Please head off to the website desmondlatham.blog. I'm going to load an update about this episode and a couple of maps. You can email me on my contact form there or direct message me on x at deslatham. Until next, tootsies.